Hi, folks. Thanks so much for uh, hanging around this afternoon. Uh, it's my friend George Verwillis here for George. And George, this is Destiny Church Edinburgh. Uh, this is our Gorgie campus. George has been speaking this morning uh, down in Leith and is heading through tonight to speak in, in uh, Destiny Church in Glasgow. So, you know, I, I figure it's actually a pretty big honor to have this man with us. Uh, this, this man, he, wouldn't like him, he probably wouldn't like this being said about him, but he's a hero in the faith. He's making great things happen around the world. And uh, we, we greatly honor that and admire that. So uh, let's hear it for uh, George Berber. What we want to make the most of this time and what I'm trying to draw out from George is I want you guys to get a feel for this man's heart and the journey he's been on. So uh, George, could you start by telling us about how you came to Christ and, and those early days? Yeah, well, it's amazing, amazing grace. I'm not a natural Christian. I'm not sure anybody is. My uh, grandfather and father came to the New York City area from uh, the, the Netherlands. The granddad was an atheist. And um, my other grandfather was Scottish, Irish, and English blood mixed. It's basically toxic. He was a drunk. <laughs> my grandmother divorced him. So already at 16, I had this addictive tendency. The main thing was girls, about 32 different girls. By the time I was 17, we didn't jump in bed with them in those days. We just, you know, kissed up a storm and a few other things. So I was really lost, and yet I was incredibly happy. Never had an unhappy day ever in my whole childhood. Great parents. I was great in sports. I was president of my class, president of student council. I had an ego as big as Grand Canyon. When a praying woman came into my life, if you want to live your own life, avoid praying women. <laughs> yeah. And she put my name on her prayer list. I'd been in a little bit of trouble with the police through some housebreaking thing. I wasn't really stealing. I was just looking around, but he, the police misunderstood. <clears throat> anyway, people were talking about me. So she put my name on her prayer list. She not only prayed that I become a Christian, I need to make this short, but she prayed that I would become a missionary. She had been praying for 15 years for this high school. She was just a woman of prayer and a great vision for missions also involved in a local church. and So it's just in God's providence. And then she sent me a Gospel of John through the post, and I began to read this book. Around the same time, I started to move into the world of pornography. I already had two businesses by then, was making quite a lot of money when I was only 16. Had 200 people selling this incredible little fire extinguisher the size of this microphone that could put out a petrol fire. And so... Um, Things were going really well when this lady, Holy Ghost Meddler, came into my life. And as I read the Gospel of John, it prepared my heart for a spiritual tornado that blew into New York City named Billy Graham. And so I went to this Billy Graham meeting again with this girl I was bananas about. And God just zapped me in that meeting. I heard the Gospel I realized what I'd been reading in that Gospel of John, what he was speaking was really the same thing, and I just felt this is truth. I was, I was a truth seeker, and I'd been looking different avenues. So that was the night, March 3rd, a long time ago, you weren't born, 1955. He came to Glasgow right after that and shook Glasgow. Thousands came to Christ here in Scotland in 55, right after my 
It's in your mother. Yeah, there it is, your mother. So um, the miracle, of course, is because the books that write about my temperament type uh, say that we don't last. It's usually one or two years. Uh, But by God's grace, every single day, every single day, I've known the power and the grace of Jesus since that night. Never had that desert experience, never had the burnout experience, never had... Of course, people expected me to have a nervous breakdown because I was going so fast, and um, that never happened. I think I caused a few, uh, and uh, I feel bad about that. But my, the miracle is God gave me the gift to recruit people that were better than myself, more clever, more gifted, and so I'm a, a recruiter. And since those days, 160,000 have been on OM. Way more of our recruits that from our meetings never go on OM. They join YWAM or join their own church thing. But even with that very open view of it all, um, 160,000 have been on OM, and about 25,000 of those approximately are in leadership, not in OM, but in God's uh, work. So one woman, that's the main thing you'll remember from my story, one woman who prayed, and I really challenge you to make prayer. I was 17 when I told God, the main thing I want in my whole life is just communion with you, just prayer. I was influenced by some very godly books and by Billy Graham's tremendous prayer ministries. So everything else sort of came uh, after that. But I'd encourage you to guard your prayer ministry to learn different ways to pray. I had the whole day in prayer yesterday, but partly helped by being on one of the most scenic railways in the entire world, the Glasgow Fort. Williams uh, Rail just went up there and back. So I basically had eight hours of prayer because for me, looking at scenery praying is a lot easier than looking at my wall or some, you know, even my desk. So I have many different ways of praying and prayer has always continued to be the main part of my life. That's why I was also able to step out. I led the work for 46 years. I was able to completely step out of all leadership um, except my little team in London Uh, because other things are such a big priority. Prayer, people, relationships, preaching. And I was happy to give up the responsibility of the leadership. Well, that's another issue. Thank you. George, could you tell us about how how you went from being a safe person? How did OM start? How did that get off the ground, that idea? How did it come to you? And what was it like in its early stages? Yeah, it was very slow. I was still a student. My first year of college, I met this guy, Dale Rotan. I was, I was a baby Christian. He was like one year old, Lord. I was immediately told on this campus, which was quite a liberal place, that watch out for him. He said he's a nutcase. He's baptizing people in the showers. <laughs> and so I knew he's a man for me to find. I met him the next Sunday. We've been close, intimate friends for 55 years. And uh, when I wanted a man to pioneer Turkey, because I knew I couldn't do it, though Turkey was my big thing, uh, I chose Dale. He wasn't planning to stay with me. He went on the original Mexico trip, but then he was getting into Whitcliffe, and then he was getting into other things. And a great day in my life is when Dale rejoined me and took on Turkey. He later became in charge of the communist world, where I also failed in my initial efforts. And then he became director of the shipment. Well, he Turkey, and then he pioneered the whole Muslim thing. And then the ship director, and... Um, with, with Mortis, actually the same age, and he's my close, he's, he was my Nathan. He would um, confront me when I saw me saying and doing stupid things. Everybody needs a Nathan. 
And of course, my wife is a Nathanette. So uh, it started small, Mexico, and then I transferred out of university and I went to Moody Bible Institute where most of the students were already at least somewhat hungry. So I got a team, another team, only five, went back the next summer. And we just saw God use us. I mean, there's nothing, when you're only 18, you see God use you, it's a real turn on. You get, you know, my faith, I think, was at a higher level than, then than maybe it, it is today. And so it just began to grow. And then we were always having these prayer meetings and we got exposed to the Muslim challenge. And that became the biggest thing. We didn't really want to do what others were already doing. And again, that's because God was doing a different thing. That's not the only way. It's good to do sometimes what others are doing. But God was raising up something that the main focus would be the most unreached places in the world. Uh, My number one country was Afghanistan. Number two was Iraq. Number three was Turkey. I mean, we didn't even consider India. And my early days in Europe, when I attempted to smuggle Bibles into Russia, I got caught due to my own stupidity. I have what's called a stupidity streak. I got thrown out. I went for the day of prayer. That's when God gave me the name Operation Mobilization during that day of prayer, and it totally changed my vision. Britain then came into focus as a place where we should be finding the workers for Iraq, Afghanistan, and the Muslim countries, and that we needed to work first with the church in Europe. That was a huge shift and see that spill over into the Muslim countries because Europe also was a desperate mission field. And so I moved from Madrid where I was living, I'd learned Spanish, to London and Britain was absolutely right. The main birthplace of OM is actually Great Britain. It was just so right. Cambridge and Oxford, the universities, soon almost every university was sending people uh, on OM. And it just kept growing, spread to India, Exploded in India, which became our largest field of our 6,000 people. 3,000 are in India. We have 3,000 in our church network there called Good Shepherd Churches. Similar bit to, I think, what you folks are doing. So that's it in a a nutshell. Maybe you want to ask a specific question that might be more helpful for these folks rather than me going on and on. Um, George, the, the situation now... In the, in the worlds, worlds is dramatically changing at a fast pace. Um, we're hearing since 2007 more people in cities than in rural areas. Uh, we're hearing Christianity is becoming a southern religion rather than a. This microphone's gone as well. <laughs> uh, we're hearing a lot of changes globally. What, what do you think? Where do you think the needs are in the world in terms of the gospel? And where do you think things are heading and what do you think the big opportunities are? What are you perceiving uh, where we're heading? Well, one of the reasons I wear my global jacket is just uh, to remind people that uh, God is doing great things around the world. You know, a lot of people are quite negative, especially older people. Hope you're not in that camp. But this is the greatest period of church growth in the history of the entire world. Uh, The last 150 years... More people have come to Christ than the previous uh, 1,850 years. That doesn't mean God wasn't doing much or something during the Crusades or before the the first missionaries ever went to China. Uh, What was the world like 200 years ago? Most of us don't really know unless you're history students. And so these are exciting days. But of course, uh, it's messy. It's complicated. And... 
missions is messily because no matter how filled we are with the Holy Spirit, no matter how visionary, we're incredibly human. We make mistakes. We don't always get on with each other. We get discouraged. Uh, things go wrong. And uh, I just think it's important to develop a positive, optimistic spirit that God is moving in the midst of the mess. I call it messiology. It's my own word. Because my whole life, everywhere I look, and I have this very critical negative streak to me, but everywhere I look, to me it's a mess. And I just spot them fast. And I spotted them in OM. And it could have really wiped me out because I was such so idealistic and dreamy about, you know, if you're radical disciples and spirit-filled, you know, what's going to really happen? But some of the most spirit-filled radical disciples that I met did the most stupid, unbelievable, even immoral things. You know, like this famous miracle healer in Holland who always had prostitutes uh, for all of his campaigns, even though he had a wife and family. It's not really too biblical approach. And why was God using him during that, bringing thousands to Christ? That did not fit into my Bible college box. That's why I developed my own box, which is not a box, called Messiology, that uh, God is often working in messy situations. So I think some of you thinking about global missions, it is messy, it's complicated, but God is on the move. And there's a lot of horrible things going on in the world. I'm involved in all these issues. I'm not involved in just uh, preaching and church planting and discipleship. I'm a major global person involved with AIDS, involved with sex traffic. Uh, you know, I take 300 meetings a year. I do a lot of television and radio stuff. I speak out on these issues in cultures like Korea where before I spoke, no one even mentioned it in that culture. Abortion is not talked about in Korea. It's illegal. So, of course, it doesn't happen. It happens in a shame-based culture. It happens in churches. It happens among Christians. It is not talked about. It is not mentioned. It does not exist. But, you see, it does exist. And this is something I hope you could grasp. If you think it was so much better 200 years ago and so miserable today, which is the idea that even some Christian leaders get, I challenge what you know about history. 200 years ago, the things that are in the press today were all buried. You think there wasn't rape in the church? You think there weren't pedophiles in the church? You think there weren't guys sleeping around uh, who were you know, churchgoers and deacons? You think children weren't abused in, their, in Christian homes 200 years ago? You're living in cuckoo land. Now, in other ways, society has got worse. So we're not denying that. But it's just a lot more complicated than some people even put into their books. And I believe some Christian books are actually harmful. That's hard to say as we became one of the largest book distributors in the world, including miserable books, um, which is a little hard to explain. But praise God. He's on the move in the midst of the mess. Um, China might be 100 million believers now. We've seen these breakthroughs in Algeria, 100,000 Muslims or more coming to Christ. We're talking disciples, we're talking churches. Uh, this breakthrough we've had among the Dalits, the untouchables of India, there's a quarter of a million. We have 3,000 churches among them. Other groups have thousands of churches. Um, you, you know What's going on in Latin America? 50 million believers in Brazil, probably half of them are backslidden. That's the other side of the coin. But these are exciting days. The need is everywhere. I mean, for you, the need should blow you away right here. Just walk around these streets at 12 o'clock at night and see, you know, what Edinburgh's like. So praise God, you're blooming where you are. And in God's timing, maybe he'll send you somewhere else. One of the miracles of my life, I bloomed in my own hometown for several years before I ever went to a foreign country. 
saw people saved, went house to house in all the surrounding towns. I'm not saying you should do that. Showed films. One meeting alone in my high school, I gave the invitation. 125 of my fellow students stood up and believe on Jesus. And so when I went to Mexico, I went already on a foundation of having bloomed in all of my struggles and weakness in my own hometown. And that's tough. You're, of course, living in a bigger city. I did some things in New York City, which was nearby, you know, track distribution, preach in the streets. But in my own little home areas where I was able to do more uh, in in-depth work at that time. We've got some books coming. I hope they're going to set them out. Yeah. So since those books arrive, we'll point you guys in the direction of that. Um, George, what, 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 we're a church that's, that's actively trying to train up people to plant churches. Uh, so James and Jess are heading out to Hong Kong. We've got Chris and Sarah going to Poland next year. And we're also looking at campus planting in the city here and, and different things like that. What advice would you give us as a local church wanting to make an international difference, uh, yet stay also locally healthy and strong? Yeah, I think one of the greatest challenges to church planting movements, which we are as well, on um, our, our church planting movement in India is so big, we're actually spinning it out of our international structure. So it'll be a totally indigenous movement. And um, I think the biggest thing is to be able to really focus on what you're doing. You believe in what you're doing. You believe God's made you a family. You want to spread your family. And to be able to throw yourself into that and yet have biblical love for others and esteem of others and appreciation of what God is doing in their lives. You might be limited in what you can demonstrate in that area because you're, you know, you're soon on overload maintaining and you know, starting your own church or planting your own vision. So one of my favorite words, I know some people don't like it, is, is the word balance, to um, really love all the believers and esteem them. And the key chapter in Swindle's book, Grace Awakening, really helped me, really helped me. It's called Graciously Disagreeing and Pressing On. So you may have strong convictions on how things should be done and you want to do it this way. And, you know, when you see other churches and others doing it a different way, well, they're probably, you know, probably wrong in that area. But just to have a grace-awakened attitude toward the whole body of uh, Christ, I think, is a beautiful thing. We tried to have that from the early days as we were impacted by very radical books that hardly anybody even reads today. A.W. Tozer... I mean, he'll take your superficiality out and, and he'll put you against the wall. You'll be screaming, and I was. Tozer took me to the wall, my superficiality, my ego, my impatience, all mixed with my preaching. I've been preaching since 17 years of age. But a lot of these great books are not so circulated today, so I think we do have a high level of superficiality, but God keeps working. If we don't believe God can use a superficial Christian... And we, you know, we don't understand God. He works through all kinds of people. And people, we were mainly, we have a thousand people working among Muslims. Every Muslim new believer has problems. They often have sexual problems. They often have different women because they believe in multiple wives. Do you think all that sorts out by, you know, waving your Christian magic wand over their heads? And it often takes time. So I would say another key thing for your church planters, cross-cultural people, is you need a lot of patience. And determined not to get discouraged. And sometimes be willing to change, uh, you know, change your strategy, even midstream. Great. 
George, one of the things, so I, I've, I've listened to a number of your MP3s and a number of your talks, and one of the things that myself and uh, many of the, the church leaders I've, been, I've grown up with and similar age to me who are planting and leading churches, one thing that's been incredibly refreshing and many people have found incredibly helpful has been your very honest, honest discussion about your own struggles. Um, could, could you give us a little bit of an insight into your journey uh, specifically with lust and how you overcome and, yeah. and also advice to anyone struggling in these areas yeah. about the way forward? Well, it's the hardest thing to talk about. You know, I didn't just fall in love with girls even when I was 13. I went steady for two and a half years at that age. I don't know if you know that term in England. Now, you commit yourself to one girl. And she wears your ring around her neck and your ego goes up and all that. They elected me president of the student council. But I didn't just fall in love with girls, I worshiped girls. You know, I had a picture of Marilyn Monroe on the end of my bed. And uh, that, then that pushed me into the world, started the world of pornography. Now, when I came to Jesus, I was able to burn my magazines. I didn't have that many. None of it was hard porno. And, but what am I gonna do about my mind? And then I read different books. Fortunately, some books about sex in the Bible uh, came to me and Billy Graham's sermon what the Bible says about sex. And then also into my hands, firstly from this book, I just saw 1 John chapter 2. First goal, sin not. That's been my goal every day. Second part of the verse, if you sin. So we will sin. Now, most sin is sort of, you know, easier to deal with. But sexual sin, we always feel 10 times more guilty. You can't talk about it. Um, the church has never really got it that sorted out, even though there's 500 verses on the subject of sex. And I think I was fortunate to be in that generation where people like Billy Graham and a guy named Jack Wurtston, a converted band leader in New York City, were starting to talk openly. And so I shared about my struggle and people showed love for me and I realized radical forgiveness so that even when I failed in that area, once years later in the woods in London, this story has gone all over the world. I was walking in the woods. I love the woods. I love nature. I was walking in the woods and there's a really the kind of pornographic magazine I would never buy. I was very tight with my money. This is God's money. I'm not going to use it. But if it's laying free on the train table that someone's left behind, uh, forgive me, ladies, it's, it's just a different level of struggle. And just, you know, have mercy on me. You won't have to hear me again. But this one was in a tree. And I got closer to it. And there were bullet holes through this magazine. And that just threw me away. Now, at this point, I'd love to give my victorious holiness testimony of how I just pointed the magazine in the name of Jesus. Boom! It disappeared. And I came out of the woods triumphant in Christ. How many of you prefer the truth? I think you're the truth generation honesty generation well the magazine made a fool out of me and I just felt so miserable how could God ever use a character like me I should really resign from leadership but somehow I knew this message of forgiveness somehow what Jesus did on the cross wasn't just for sin before I was became a believer what Jesus did was for sin that I shouldn't commit but I did commit after I became a believer and so somehow I crawled out of the woods actually really angry with the enemy for such a nasty attack and was much stronger to deal with similar temptations. And it's just a miracle I've never slept with another woman. I mean, it's just a total miracle. 
My kind of guy, even the whole idea of one wife is just ridiculous. The Muslim thing, they've got it, really. And someone of my temperament, I need one for secretarial work, one for just the house, one just stays up in the bedroom, one for, one for traveling with me. But this, is, this book is you know, geared to one wife. And because of Jesus, I've been totally faithful, completely, to one wonderful woman, and we celebrated 52 years of marriage. <laughs> Forgiveness, radical grace. And I thank the Lord that though years ago, you would get more criticized when you have this kind of message. Today, many godly leaders are more in agreement of radical forgiveness and seeing people restored, even people who have been in prison for horrible things. It's not easy, but I think that's our message. And so here I am. I still have to be careful. Uh, Just to make you a little more relaxed, a miracle of grace from the beginning is I hardly ever get uh, any evil thought or lustful thought toward a Christian woman. It's bizarre, isn't it? I just have such a respect for God's people. But then on the other side, a total stranger who's really just a knockout, it's another set of complexities. So I just thank the Lord for his grace. And I've had the privilege of helping thousands, thousands of people come through their sexual failures, men and women, though the women don't talk about it as openly. But a woman... Um, sent me an email recently after I touched on this, and this was when I touched on it, like for only a minute, a couple of minutes in my sermon. And she said, I've been carrying a cloud, a dark cloud of sexual hurt for 30 years. And when you spoke, that cloud lifted. She just, and another man, I think it was uh, in Lancaster over here, not far from here, came to me. He was a very shy man, older man. He stayed back because I talked to a lot of people. He just stayed and waited, waited, waited. He came to me and he said, I, I thought I was the only person in this church that had these problems with pornography. And what you said here in my church has changed my life. Another guy heard one sentence where I acknowledged my struggle with pornography. He was totally addicted, a Scandinavian. And he had given up. Christian faith, it doesn't work. We prayed, we had hands laid on, you know, went through everything. And he heard this word of this uh, testimony. And the next time I met him, he was joining Operation Mobilization to serve as a missionary. And he said, those few sentences gave me hope. People need hope. There are people that are going to commit suicide in Edinburgh. Nothing like New York City. (laughs) There are people that are going to commit suicide. If we could get to them and give the message of forgiveness and hope and, and love them, they, w- they wouldn't do that. And that's one of my passions. I'm a complicated person, according to my friends, because I have this passion to reach the whole world with the gospel. But when I'm talking to one individual with problems, sometimes even in a prison, I blot out everything else, and I'm just thinking about that one person. And I'm now in touch with thousands of people through the internet, Facebook, and letters, because I'm now an old geezer. And these kind of people that you got this bond with, it builds up. And now some of them I go to their funerals. In one week, four days, I had four friends go to glory. So when you get my age, you get a whole new set of challenges. But for sure, all of life is one big challenge. And there's no retirement programs. There's change. There's, you know, pulling back maybe because of health. But there's no retirement program. All of you are young. You don't need that now. So write that down and read it 30 or 40 years from now. 
Okay, George, it's really practical. Someone here is struggling, whether it's with pornography or with another struggle. What steps do they take? Well, I think it's good to be able to share it with someone. Now, we know that sharing is risky. I think in my early days, I thought sharing, is that's the solution. But sometimes you share with someone who betrays you. You have to be willing to take that risk. You know, of course, calculate who you share it with. If you want it to be confidential, you need to make that as clear as a pike staff. I failed a couple of times in confidentiality because I didn't know what the person was saying was confidential. But uh, I've, only, I've always been able to share. Let me throw in here something that might be a help. In the church 30 years ago, we didn't have enough respect for emotion. Your emotions are important. Don't think it's all just an I self, take up the cross and follow him. That is part of the message. But there are many other verses. And my friend, Matt Elliott, who is my gopher, I've had a, a helper uh, with me, traveling with me. He's here somewhere today. I think he went off to see Edinburgh. He's never been here. It's his first week, but he's been with me. His name is Andrew. Uh, it reminds me of this other guy because they're six foot three. But Matthew, after he was my helper, some years later got his PhD here in Glasgow, or maybe, uh, maybe Aberdeen, got his PhD and wrote a book about emotion. And I've read parts of that book and I could only say amen. Our emotions are important. And one of the reasons that I'm still here all these years later is I learned to respect my emotions. I learned that it's not always just deny self. Sometimes you need to talk things through. I cry things through. I, I, I openly go to people. If they've really hurt me, uh, you know, and I, I just try to talk about it and even say, look, that's really hurtful to me. I don't know why. Why would you say that? And more than that, I've gone to the people that I've hurt. The one I've hurt the most is my own wife. I'm just a natural, uh, you know, tongue five seconds faster than the brain. And I have a natural way of saying unkind things. If you have a natural way of saying unkind things, you're in trouble. It's a horrific, terrific thing to have in your life. I had it. Can naturally, little quips uh, that some people would laugh at at certain temperaments. Other temperaments, they were hurt by it. I hurt a lot of people down the road. And so I'd encourage you to get control of that tongue and to, at the same time, realize these struggles are all normal. If you're like depressed early in the morning and you need your tea first, uh, you know, that's normal. My wife is so different from me. We were a typical Bible college marriage. We didn't really know each other. I gave her just one key verse. Initially, she wasn't even in love. I scared her. Uh, the, the first date, I said, nothing going to happen between you and me, but you need to know this. If you marry me, I'm going to be a missionary. You're probably going to be eaten alive by cannibals in New Guinea. And... Uh, of course, you know, she was not in love, but I mobilized my prayer warriors and uh, they broke her heart. And so she agreed to marry me. I gave her that key verse, submit unto your husbands as unto the Lord. And she accepted it. And so I asked her to marry me. She thought I was a man of God and she was beginning to sort of fall in love. And so we got married. I didn't believe in honeymoon, didn't believe in spending any money, hardly for anything. She had already forsaken every. She'd be a millionaireess today if she hadn't given me all her money because she had an inheritance from her father killed in the war. Another reason she had all these emotional things. And so we just went to Mexico, lived on the floor in the back of a bookshop that I just opened. And praise God, you know, we just had such a tremendous marriage for several weeks. And, uh, 
then she started to express her viewpoint and she started to read the other verses. She read the whole chapter. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. I find that one of the most humbling, rebuking verses in the whole of the Bible. I try not to read it too much so I don't get depressed. <laughs> I don't know how we got into all this. So step one, you, you're t- you talk honestly about your struggle. Step two. Oh, the word of God, devouring the word of God, really braining, brainwashing yourself with God's word. In, in Proverbs alone, there are three chapters just about avoiding, avoiding beautiful, attractive women that want to go to bed. So I devoured those chapters. And then another thing is, you know, when you have a vision, and this is where I'm fortunate, and I don't judge other people. A lot of my friends are so different from me, we might as well come in from other planets. That's fine. A lot of my friends, I don't want them to come on OM. I hope they will not come on OM. We're all different. But um, when you've got a vision and you're focused, it's much harder for the enemy to catch up with you. Now, he'll change. You know, he'll try some other method. But uh, I've been busy for Jesus every single day pretty well since my conversion. Now, it's easier for my temperament because I was busy for other things before I came to Jesus. So some of you that are more like my wife, it's often going to be a bigger struggle. But Jesus meets you where you are with your temperament. And his grace has been sufficient for my amazing wife with all of the hurt from her background, her stepfather who abused her verbally, threw her out of the home, put her in a closet in an orphanage, tons of hurtful stuff. I've seen God's grace in her life just as much as in my life, though we're very, very different. And I hope someday you can meet her. If you're in West Wickham, Kent, which is part of London, I'll pop in. My wife makes pretty well the best cups of tea in the whole of London. Wow. I think time is gone, George. Thank you so much for your insight, for your wisdom. Can you bring me those sample books? Ask Sharon to bring me some. I'd just like to mention a couple of books. Uh, I sent, I, I had a big order of books to come up here to give away. They, they never got here. So something happened. I could send those later. I've done that with Destiny in Glasgow. But we have a few books that we have already here in Scotland with our Scottish rep, Sharon. And I'm asking her, and these are at a special price. There's also some of my CDs. Uh, that There are about five or six CDs in an album, and they're just for a pound. Just, it's just a token. Because if, you, if I've said anything that's been helpful to you, thank you, Sharon. Just put them on this table. If I've said anything that's helpful to you, uh, you might find these other CDs, you know, bring it into balance or take it on. Are there any CDs left, those albums? Well, he's disappeared, my helper. Anyway, here's some of the books we have. Here's one by an Asian, just how to keep going, you know, how to keep on keeping on. Uh, He started when he was like 20 in OM. He's now one of our major leaders in the whole of Asia. So it's called Keep Going. This is probably... In its day, one of the most famous uh, Christian books on the cross and the crucified life. Just so basic. Here's one about what we were just talking about, how to get forgiveness in the whole area of sexual failure. And one of the first persons to ever write on this was Roy Hessian. That's one of the books I'd love to send you free, Calvary Road, his first book, because I'm, I'm in charge of the Roy Hessian Trust and we got money to give him away. But this is one of his other books. But it's all about grace. This is the most influential book in my life in the last 10 years. Just a wake up, what women are going through around the world, the sex traffic thing, the AIDS thing, the honor killings. I mean, this is dynamite. And uh, if you want, I could send some up 
to give away, but we just have a few, so you'll have to uh, pay for it. This is Viv Thomas. He and I were together for 30 years. He's now got his own ministry. Very unique man, uh, leadership formation. And this is book, Second Chance. Most people, you can't tell you this now, 20 years ago, 20 years from now, we can tell you, most people don't get in their first choice world. Things go wrong, U-turns, sometimes things like divorce. But you know, a lot of the people in the Bible were not in their first choice world. You just read about some of those characters. And Viv's brilliant book, Second Choice. And this is the most famous missionary book at all t- of all times, the one we don't give free. Completely revised. You say, what am I ever going to do with that? If you take the investment of getting this book at a special price, you will be using it probably the rest of your life. There may never be a new edition. It's getting too difficult. The church is growing so fast. Many agencies, great agencies, they're not even in here. Destiny's probably not even here. Just so much is going on. So this may be the last time we ever have Operation World, plus everything's going digital. You'll be able to get maybe a new one on Kindle. Um, I'm not sure because of the complexity of getting prayer information on every single nation and almost every people's group in the world. So I know it's a bit of money, but we've got a few, and it's just a great book. And they're just outside the door. Also some literature about OM. The key of Operation Mobilization's growth is partnership with churches. We're uh, only in India we do our own churches among the Dalit people. Generally, we just work with other churches. There's no OM, OM churches in the UK. And we have thousands of partnerships with churches. And we know often their own vision is their priority. But we ask churches just to keep a 10% for groups like OM. Somebody in the church who's a little different, is not fitting into the main thrust of their whole movement, uh, and to be open to them, perhaps like working on our ship for one or two years, probably after that, they'll come back. About 25,000 of our 160,000 graduates, 25,000 approximately are leaders in the body of Christ, not in our, not in OM, in churches, church movements. 150 mission agencies and church movements trace their birth back to OM. One of them, KP Ahanan Gospel for Asia, with 15,000 workers and thousands and thousands of churches. So we want to bless the whole body of Christ. We don't want to do our own thing. And thanks for the privilege of being here. Thank you so much, George. Uh, I'm sure you'll agree that was just uh, very insightful. Lots of gems of wisdom in there. Put your hands together again, folks. Show honor and appreciation to George Verwer. Hi, I hope that today's message has helped you. If you want to find out more about us as a church, download more audio teaching, give us feedback, or make a contribution to our ongoing work and mission here in Edinburgh, please visit our website at destinyedinburgh.com. May God continue the great work that he is doing in your life.